Thanks for downloading the 25th in our series of episodes of the C-Suite podcast that we're recording in partnership with the European PR agency Taito and the Rome Without Borders podcast, where we are interviewing leaders of unicorn companies to find out about the key issues, pain points and challenges that startups face and how they can address them with a strategic approach to marketing and communications. My name is Russell Goldsmith and my co-host for this episode is Taito's senior partner, Holly Justice. And today we're thrilled to be joined online from Amsterdam by Krish Subramanian. Uh, co-founder and CEO of Chargebee, a subscription management platform that automates the operations of over 4,000 high-growth subscription-based businesses. Uh, founded in 2011, Chargebee reached unicorn status in April 2021 and has now raised a total of $470 million in funding with a valuation of $3.5 billion. Welcome to the show, Krish. It'll be great if we can start by you telling us a little bit more about Chargebee. Thanks for having me. As you mentioned, Chargebee is a subscription uh, management and billing platform powering over 4,500 subscription businesses globally. We serve majority of the customers in North America and Europe, and we work with customers from very early stage, which is free product market fit companies that start with our freemium plan all the way through. And, and these early stage companies look at billing as a simple solution to enable them to launch and get to product market fit to pre-IPO companies. Uh, through the high growth stage, we work with them where it becomes integral part of their growth infrastructure and compliance. So we work with companies across the spectrum is what we do, focused on subscription and billing. And what actually led you to launch the company then? This was a eight, nine year dream of uh, from the very early stage. I'm a software engineer by training. My co-founder was my classmate from engineering days, one of the co-founders. And four of us started Chargebee. But uh, for, uh, for over eight, nine years, we used to follow a lot of companies out there in the world, including Basecamp, this particular blog. We all know Stack Overflow and Trello. But the makers of that company uh, used to write this popular blog called joelonsoftware.com. And as a developer, we used to read these diligently almost every week. And so we, over eight, nine years, we saved up and said, at some point, we want to quit and start a company. We just did not know when. But we wanted to earn our financial independence by saving up 20, 30% of our salaries on a, uh, almost every month so that at some point, we'll give ourselves a chance to start. So it is a team-first company, not an idea-first company. So we said, okay, we want to start a product company. And by 2011, it was clear that it has to be SaaS. And then we said, we picked a problem to solve. For us, the problem itself was a means to build the organization. Has the vision changed at all since that initial start? The idea of learning to build a good company, I don't think it ever stops, right? So that has been, that still continues to be the uh, vision. The mission of actually solving subscription management and billing, that one, I think we are boring people, right? In some sense, we, we'd like to fall in love with some good boring problems. And this is one of those problems that is growing in complexity and uh, its infrastructure, it's, it's almost behind the scenes when it comes to how we solve it. And it grows in relevance, right? We did not imagine or foresee that so many businesses will embrace subscriptions the way they are embracing today. We couldn't have foreseen that in 2011. And I think uh, very fortunate from that perspective. So the mission continues to be the same to say, hey, let's build a good organization and solve this problem really well, just continues to grow in significance. And and that, that shift in how many companies are now using a subscription model, what do you think has, has caused that surge in demand? I think clear alignment of customers' interest and the business interest. The second one is predictability of revenue which reduces the uncertainty of building a long-term profit-generating business. I think uh, that is one. And the second one is definitely the consumer behavior. You, are, you can almost tailor-make it for consumer behavior. We live in an Uber world where the personal experience and the business experience, like the software that you use in business, 
you don't expect that to be too far off with respect to the level of personalization you expect right and um, i think that one and then of course i think the most important one in my mind is the alignment of customer interest to say i don't want to pay for something that i don't use and the business interest to say i want to capture more value if i'm actually delivering more value it's very clearly aligned and that is what pay as you go or a subscription or a usage based billing model makes possible and of the the 10 years that that charge b has been around what else has evolved within your industry over that time this is the fundamental shift that happens in almost every industry right which is what is considered as okay i need to build it myself like crm as a category now everybody knows that you don't build it yourself you of course buy a crm system you buy accounting system but the digital marketing automation the pieces of what hubspot uh, the likes of hubspot does used to be pieces that people used to do themselves a lot of pieces of that right and then it becomes a established category from the build versus buy shift and for us this is one of those things that continues to evolve where a lot of code related to what we today offer as out of the box integration uh, out of the box product used to be a build versus buy problem a lot of people used to think that's super simple i can build it myself and it's drastically in the last 5 years shifting to i don't want to deal with this right because i thought this was simple but it's again and again people are actually disturbing me asking me to build one more thing related to this i don't want to do it right and that massive shift where the relevance of your problem as is, is seen as just a necessary feature which is like i want to launch website i want to launch my product i just have three price plans i want to launch it to you know what there is so much business model and revenue model innovation happening the vp of sales is disturbing me every day to say hey when are we going to launch three new currencies i want to launch in this this country and all of that this business model innovation is just accelerating and that hits what you thought was a internal system and today that becomes the choke point for growth and this massive shift i think has happened over a period of time and it is now accelerated especially in the last 3 to 5 years is a massive shift that we see in our industry and and we've just talked a little bit about what's changed in the last decade i suppose looking ahead what do you think will be the most important trends for your industry in the coming months the the important part in the very interesting part that i find is the evolution of software and subscriptions especially has been pretty recent right we today we the people who live in the subscription bubble or saas industry we are many of us are born in this industry many companies are born in the industry we don't even know the old way of actually doing things how archaic things were so that is a big shift and within that within subscriptions the last 10 years one of the focus area was acquisition 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 but now people are realizing how important retention is like it's much better to retain a customer retaining a single customer is better than acquiring seven more new customers and the importance of the nuanced metrics that you are able to trace it back to acquiring the right customers is something that maturity is actually coming through so which means that as the business model evolves we are seeing the maturity of businesses which are thinking about investing in retention and customer success from day one like for charge we itself we invested in customer success after 5 years after starting the company most of our peers were like that all of us were 6 months 1 year late when we set up customer success as a separate function from customer support but today most businesses are starting with customer success as a function which means that retention is a focus second is multi channel experiences whether it's online offline to customers whether it's a b2b b2b business or a b2c business you are thinking about your customer experience across all channels how are they buying right and that has become so diverse compared to how it was previously and there is increased appreciation for in the context of b2b right now developer as a key stakeholder in the buying process is something there is increased appreciation for which means that 
there's a strong emphasis on treating documentation and api as a first class citizen in the product building process not as an afterthought where you just publish the document later it is part of the integral part of the product experience the same context in b2c is every channel experience like whether you buy through uh, app store or you browse just like netflix you can actually see the movie on a tv but you should be able to renew the subscription on a mobile device and your kids could be watching that on another device and you know that there are multiple users and personas and you want to unify the experience you don't want to be left behind i think the this personalization at scale and deriving lessons from b2c into b2b and then some of the b2b lessons actually going into b2b and the business model revenue model transformation are all like fascinating things that are just accelerating with more and more people understanding the the levers of the subscription businesses Chris, I mentioned at the top of the show in my intro about you guys becoming a unicorn back in April uh, last year. Well, 12 months ago now, I guess, as we're, as we're recording this. How did reaching that milestone change the perception of the company at all? Did, did, did it change in any way? Yes and no. I hope not internally. There is a reason I say that. I'll come to that. Yes, from the outside, because one, there is increased confidence from customers right, that we have the resources to continue to invest in the product, right, and the commitment to build something long-term, right, which is good. That's one. Second is, it also brings in a caliber of talent that we did not have access to previously, who are now part of the business, and it helps you build a much better product, much better service level for the customers. Right? I think those are two external things that definitely helps from that change. Internally, the reason I say I hope a lot of things have not changed is something that we consciously talk about is don't let any of these numbers and these things get into our head because ultimately, even if that one customer has a not so great experience, it's important that we are able to fix it for that person that's 100% of their truth if something is broken. And it doesn't matter whether it works for the 99% of the other customers, right? So, which means that we need to stay grounded to the reality of that one customer is extremely important inside out. Something we insist on is let's not change a lot of things internally simply because we became a unicorn. No, we didn't get smarter because of that. <laughs> and, and you mentioned about building the product and, and better products. I mean, that your latest valuation, so $3.5 billion I mentioned earlier, you know, that's that was achieved with the latest funding round of $250 million. Where, where is that investment going to be used with, you know, within the business and, and how is that going to help your, you know, your growth and development? The mar- it's driven by mostly by market opportunity as well and the momentum uh, of, of course, the company and the product uh, and also the market opportunity. I think there are millions of businesses out there right? where the market we serve today are in North America, Europe, which is launching in India and also APAC as a market. right? And these are just the core markets that we are now operating in. And there is like so much more to expand, whether it's LATAM, all of our partners, including whether it's uh, Salesforce or Freshworks or Stripe, PayPal, they all operate in a lot of other markets that we don't operate in yet, like LATAM and Japan and others. So when we look at a three to five year horizon, we want to be powering thousands and thousands of subscription businesses, not just 5,000. How do you go from the 5,000 businesses to 100,000 businesses? That's one. The second is supporting the scale of operations of our customers, where many of our customers are in the all the way from the early tens of millions of dollars through 500 million kind of stage. Uh, and some of them are post-IPO companies, but they have a vision to say, how do I build billions of dollars in revenue? The disruption is happening across industries. And our job is to build that infrastructure that remains behind the scenes and powering these businesses, thousands of such businesses. And that's what we are trying to do. So we are hoping that we'll be in the next three to five years, one is powering 100,000 subscription businesses and hopefully taking so many of our customers through an IPO journey and delivering that promise of product roadmap 
to enable them to get there. And also, it's a very interesting space, right? Which is our customers are in the forefront of defining how the business model is supposed to work. Like many of our customers are going through the transformation of inside-out transformation of going from subscription model to a pay-as-you-go slash usage-based billing model, which means that we are supporting them to go through the transition. It's not just changing your pricing on your website, but it's actually internally changing your sales incentives, changing your data fidelity to know how to predict your revenue for the rest of the year, which is not based on annual contracts, but usage of customers. So the demand is there. We are seeing a huge transformation of earlier. What we saw previously was a transformation from old school one-time revenue to subscription revenue. But what we are going to see in the next three to five years is a transformation of the nuance of subscription revenue to shift more towards a user-centric pay-as-you-go models is where we are going to see that. And uh, we are excited about uh, transforming ourselves and keeping up with the growth of our customers and enabling. Picking up on, on what you were saying there about changes in subscription models, I was just wondering whether or not any particular industry leads the way, you know, listening to what you were saying about Netflix, for example. So do, do you find that as certain companies or, or certain industries change the way that their subscription models work, do, do, does that you know, drive other industries and other companies to follow suit? Absolutely, yes. Right. I'll give a particular example. Right. Anytime it actually touches the customer and it creates a delight moment for the customers, I think everybody else pays attention to it. Right. A case in point is if you take the B2B example, it's actually Slack. Slack says they actually have a page they published as fair billing. And they say that, you know what, every time if you don't use it for a month, if there are users who are, let's say, on vacation and you purchase 10 licenses, but three of your users are on vacation, they actually give you credit for those three users and make sure that you don't get charged for those. Do they have to do it? Yes, right? Yes and no, right? Will the customers actually ask for it? Probably not, but it's the right thing to do. And they do it. And when they do it, it actually becomes a benchmark in customer experience and expectations. And then others start following it, right? And the same thing that actually happens in, sometimes it also becomes a competitive differentiation. Imagine you only sell annual contracts, but your competitor actually comes to the market and says, you know what? Yes, it's an annual contract, but that's just for a mutual commitment to say, I will continue to serve you. That's paper, but I'm going to charge you no platform fees. I'm going to charge you only based on usage model. Suddenly, you have a competitor who's actually innovating on your revenue model with a similar product and completely doing better than you simply because they can win more customers by removing one of the biggest friction points, which is price negotiation. If that happens, then what do you do? Right. So sometimes it's driven by competition, sometimes by market trends, and but many a times driven by customer expectation of what is the right thing. And that standard continues to uh, raise when it comes to customer experiences. I think that's the way I look at it. And reflecting a little bit more on the journey that you've had so far at Chargebee, what would you say has been the most critical kind of foundational step for you in building a company that, that's kind of enduring and long-lasting? Uh, we, we talk about this a lot, right? So as a company that said, okay, we have software skills, we can understand a problem, break it down and solve. We strongly lean on listening to customers and taking feedback very seriously to uh, build and solve the right problems, right? That's something we are very proud of and not because you are smarter than your customers to say, okay, oh yeah, I know how to solve this, right? That's not where it comes from. So which means that I think for us, it goes back to this idea of caring about solving a customer problem Right. When I say customer, it's actually the business problem and enable them. Right. I think that's where we are anchored and that's our biggest strength is how we look at our DNA. And I can talk about a particular example. A customer like bought by many, which is disrupting insurance space, is actually saying it's actually a company born in Europe, 
but going global and building a phenomenal customer experience in insurance tech space. It's for pet insurance, interestingly. And when you think about what makes them successful, right, they put their customer experience at the heart of their business, all the way from the way somebody can buy insurance to redeeming, like going through the entire life cycle. And for them, something like payment method is a key friction point. Allowing the customers to pay the way they want to pay every month is important. Trying to apply, let's say, credit card-based payments is more convenient for me, doesn't work. Which means that now Charge B has to play a very important part of the role in a customer who will buy through web, mobile, or through a mobile or through app store and might want to pay through credit card or alternate payment methods. If it's Germany, then so forth. If it's Netherlands, it has to be ideal. And enabling them to actually do that as a recurring transaction is integral part of their growth story. And for us, most of our long-term success is anchored around enabling that for the customers. So understanding what makes them successful and then tying it back to our product roadmap and continuously trying to unblock them and enabling them for their growth, I think has been almost like a should be an obsession is something we try to drive inside the team so that every engineer learns to think about it from that perspective. Do you have any one particular industry that you see more success in? SaaS and SaaS-like businesses is how we define it internally. Like the, the interesting th- thing about uh, this whole transformation, right? There is this whole subscription as a revenue model that's actually changing. But the underlying thing that we are actually seeing is the sassification of various industries that's happening. So what I mean by that is uh, 90% of our customers consume the API. And uh, we call this SaaS and SaaS-like because 70% of the customers are pure place, look like SaaS businesses. And then there is a 20% of the businesses which actually are services that are getting SaaSified like a case in point is a translation business like Imagine Friends, which is a sitcom, very popular. And you want to show that in almost every language in Europe and around the world, then you need to translate audio, you need to do the recording, you need closed captions and everything needs to be translated. Imagine the natural language processing and AI is evolved so much that it can actually spit out all the translation and then actually do a great job than let's say manually doing it in the previous era. And which means that a service business, which is a billion dollar revenue is actually productizing the services and transforming a services business into a product plus services business. While there is still voiceover business to be done, we are actually leveraging the productization to actually do this faster, better. And our job in this sassification is, and and the reason I say sassification is, it's not just slapping a product on top of services. It's actually an inside-out transformation of thinking about your revenue model where you don't try to charge them let's say a million dollars to translate so many episodes. Instead, you say the pay-as-you-go model, you are actually starting with a revenue model that changes from how do I have a recurring stable revenue stream that goes with the growth with the customer based on what I'm delivering to them, having customer success embedded into this revenue model, who's incentivized on what. All of that is an inside-out transformation of a business and not just like just a plastic change at the top. And it's a fantastic seat from which we are a vantage point from which we are able to see these transformations happening. So, Russell, to answer your question, most SaaS and SaaS-like businesses, which are high growth and going through the SaaSification of the industries, powered mostly by SaaS services, e-learning, and e-commerce. These are the businesses that we primarily serve. And then, uh, but of 5,000 customers, I can always quote like 50 or 100 customers almost in many industries, simply because there is a long tail of different types of industry leaders emerging in almost every industry imaginable. And how are you differentiating yourself then when it comes to communicating the business and raising awareness to, to all those other businesses out there that, that you want to reach? 
we think of this as okay staying true to our dna right which is okay our strength is in understanding a depth of a problem and solving that really well so uh, it's a api first product we don't want to come in with arrogance to say you know what i've solved everything for you instead we have really well solved some problems some really well up to 90 percentage in the core of the product and then the rest we have actually built a flexible way in which you can solve it yourself wherever we are not actually addressing the gaps so the interoperability of the product is something we are extremely proud of and we deliberately try to do that really well right? which is api first as well as an integrated solution from whether it's a crm accounting system payment processors or a host of other at other solutions that's one the the second one is every industry that we are operating in where we say we have a deep solution we want to make sure that we are going really deep into it Uh, a case in point is if it is a b2b company and the ability to override price when i'm negotiating a contract is super important for me the customers don't come in and then always buy only from the website that's product led motion to try the product but in b2b context they always try before they buy so the buying process actually happens where there is a human many a times where even product led growth has human assisted sales many a times which means that you should be able to override the price and still factor in some of these things so for us the strength is in going deeper into the use cases that serves a particular industry is how we differentiate thinking about company culture for a minute i suppose you've kind of operated in a high growth fast moving environment how have you gone about building the culture at charge b very interesting topic right because hard to define and hard to practice um so see first time founder right first Six seven years, we had this thing uh, where we said, "Hey, who are we to actually say this is the right behavior?" So we actually did not document it for six seven years. But we realized that when we were actually crossing this two hundred plus people, people want to know what is celebrated, what's frowned upon, and how do I know I belong here? So we said, "Okay, how do we organically document?" Then we actually did a bunch of workshops to actually surface what people like here and all of that, and then we identified. four values that we said okay we should celebrate more of this and want more of this behavior and that led to us saying okay customer centricity as one of the core values not customer first but customer centricity uh, deliberately right and uh, empathy as one of the core values simply because and i mean hindsight i'm i'm happy that we picked empathy because in a distributed world covid affected world it has never been true than like necessary right whether it's about to your own peers and customers and then all of and the bias to action right in some sense i'll actually admit this is almost aspirational as well for us which is just being the dna of the team is being extremely thoughtful and we want to do the right thing but the the counter balance to that is you need to act and fast even though you may not have full information so we picked some of those values like bias to action and then of course curiosity to want to know deeper about a problem whatever you pick like how do you have the genuine curiosity as things that we deliberately documented i think the process of documenting the operating principles and values of the company was just one pillar and then we look at two other pillars that we are now trying to raise awareness in the company because the culture is just one is values the second is rituals and third is a habits how do we ensure we are actually we are not leaning on just the values but we have certain rituals about how we will build the product how we will care about knowing the details of what problem are we solving same way when it comes to habits what we mean is simple things that will actually raise the standard of what we do really well right and and those are three pillars that we look at is how we think about culture internally such a great way to look at it so a big part of building a company culture is obviously all about internal communications and engaging with your with your team 
you've now got a, a workforce of, of 1,200 people spread kind of geographically across the world. As you mentioned, during COVID, lots of people have been working remotely and there's been, been that big shift. How have you navigated that balance between communicating kind of individually or on a team level with then comms and, and when it needs to be kind of addressing the entire team? Some of the things we spoke about, right, the, the, the values, if they are not practiced on a day-to-day basis, especially if it doesn't pass that moment of truth, then it becomes hyperbole. So deliberately trying to figure out how to tie them together is where is one of the things we have been trying to do. Like when I'll give an example of this when it comes to internal comms as well as the demonstration of this, which is for the last four years plus, right, we have been doing this internal podcast listening session to celebrate curiosity as a value. And within that, we have had, instead when COVID hit, every Friday, now in two times, earlier it used to be in one time zone, now we do it in two time zones. We just sit down in a room and then or now we join a Zoom call and we listen to podcasts. It could be on any random topic. Sometimes it's about product, it's about product marketing. Sometimes it's about like somebody said, hey, we should understand more about, let's say when BLM was actually his thing in US, the Black Lives Matter as a movement was taking off. Somebody said, hey, I think we should have increased appreciation for this. So it's not a token to say, put some labels and stickers to support. Instead, why don't we build a more awareness about how to create an inclusive culture? So we listen to topics from experts to say, how do you build an inclusive culture. And that led to some initiatives where for 12 months, we brought external experts to come and talk about, like once a month, we had somebody coming in and talking about how to have a talk about awareness about diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? What is the difference between equity and equality, right? Things like that. So deliberately, when you actually demonstrate within the organization that it's first the growth mindset is necessary. Second is everybody, including us, should get very comfortable with saying, I don't know enough about this topic, but you know what? We are going to sit down and learn. It actually creates a particular type of comfort within the organization to get comfortable with the idea of just learning new things and not have to feel like, okay, I'm a manager. I'm supposed to be an expert in everything. No, even if you are a CEO, usually you are good at certain things, but you are really bad at a lot of things. So get comfortable with that idea and then do this. Then it actually permeates in the organization. And that's what we are hoping will continue to happen, right? And then you can build on that to uh, cascade that through a series of communication, whether it's in Slack or the tone of message when it comes to all hands meetings and everything, it actually cascades. And when we bring in new leaders into the organization, they will naturally follow this because this aligns with the behavior that's celebrated and looked upon in the organization. I think this is just one of the many ways we have tried to solve it, but happy to go into anything that you think is interesting here. And Krish, what about your role as an external um, spokesperson and representative of, of the business? How comfortable are you as an external spokesperson and, and what have you learned doing that along the way? Uh, I call myself a trained extrovert to some extent, right? Engineer. <laughs> Right. Um, my safe space is okay, going into the details and looking at problems and solving it. Right. But uh, it's a role play and I'm enjoying this uh, to learn on the job, and which is good. But I think as I learn about, as a company continues to scale, right, and then when I look around the, the talent around the table and the caliber of people who are able to own certain problems completely, my job is continuously changing almost on a six to nine month basis. It, that's not the job I have to do. Like three years back, I used to take full responsibility for like overall revenue, right? VP of sales used to take full responsibility for the new sales, right? And But then my commitment to the rest of the organization when it comes to uh, the board internally was, okay, so overall revenue used to be my responsibility. Then we hired a CRO. 
right? And now the CRO is in charge of revenue and thinking about the quarter and the year. Now, what am I supposed to do in that one? Right? So you let go of the job and then you actually fire yourself from that, but you focus on something else. So today I look at my job as primarily two or three things, which is one is investor relationship and making sure that we have an aligned execution about long-term in terms of where we are heading, defining the box, right? Like a CRM is very clearly defined box, but subscription management is still not a defined box. So I spend more, more of my time trying to understand this from the lens of the customer and where we need to go to build differentiated long-term category and a product is one of the areas where I try to spend my time. Second is uh, hiring uh, and communication, right? I think I, you'll be surprised by the number of times I actually hear from potential candidates who actually say, I listened to that podcast, this was interesting. Or sometimes the customers listen to it, their product-led growth and say, okay, now that is interesting that right? I want to learn more. And the paid forward also happens where some people just reach out for help. So most of my time is mainly focused on making sure that we are able to bring the right talent into the organization and then communicating more often right, uh, about like what we are doing and bringing that consistency internally and externally are things that I mainly focus on. Uh, and of course, just get the chairs out of the way so people can just go solve their problems is the third one. <laughs> I think you're so right, though, about, you know, potential recruits listening to the podcast. We, we Another client of ours that, that we produce content for said that you can't get across the passion that they that they have for their business you know as much as when you obviously if you've got the ability to to hear to you know when you're listening to to the podcast and hearing him or, or his team talking about it but it was interesting you saying that you're kind of learning on the job would you say you've always been a natural communicator or have you had to formulate a plan you know as the business has grown i think uh, just again that that is also another one where i just listen to a lot more people talking right like brian halligan i'm a fan huge fan of brian halligan founder and uh, now chairman of HubSpot, right? listen to him talk and then you realize that actually, you know what? I can relate to him a lot more about him being that geek and introvert and a lot of things. And then he talks about taking a nap in the afternoon. So you can, if you can be somebody who operates or built a company to a billion dollar revenue, can be that authentic. Right? There is no reason for me to be some fake, to be somebody else. Right? So it gives you that increased confidence to feel like, yeah, you can be yourself and still build a good company. right? And so I just try to listen to a lot more people and very grateful for the number of people who actually put themselves out there in a very authentic way without actually looking different, trying to sound different. Instead, they are themselves and just listening to them, watching them are ways in which I've been learning on the job. Oh, well, we've, we've certainly enjoyed, I mean, in this series, as I said at the, at the, the top of the, of the show, you're our 25th uh, unicorn leader guest on the show. And it's getting to hear the person, you know, like you said, the, the real person behind what you see on the website and all the corporate um, responses is 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 great to have these chats. But in, ter- in terms of those, those communications, then what what's been the biggest challenge that you've faced since launching uh, ChargeMe? And, and um, yeah, how did you overcome it? <laughs> One of the things that I'm still learning is how not to be taken out of context. That's one of my biggest fears, right? Being misquoted or like taken out of context because there is so much nuance to communication that how do you say something in a way that it's actually understood with the context is one of my biggest fears. Because if you want a depth of a nuance of a topic, then you have to go deeper. But in a world that is actually so distracted, it's actually hard to actually have room for nuance. That's just one of my fears. I do not know how to actually solve it, but I'm just, I try to make sure that I give as much context as possible while trying to do it and becoming very comfortable with giving more context simply because, right? I don't want to give quick one-liners because that's not my thing. 
but I'm more comfortable giving contextual answers. So this is one of my the, my biggest fears and challenges. <laughs> and, and what about in general? So kind of outside of, of comms, what would you say is the biggest challenge that a CEO of a unicorn company faces? So the, the biggest challenge that I have faced, right, as a company continues to grow is learning to hire people who are extremely way better than you, who have been executives in other companies, learning to hire them and manage them well is something most of us have not been through, especially as first-time founders. I've never been an exec. I've been a developer all my life before starting Chargebee. And now, right, when Chargebee was small, it didn't matter because we were like still figuring things out on the floor and all of that. And then uh, there is a certain point when you actually start hiring executives who have been part of executive teams of large companies. And you suddenly realize that there is a big gap in actually learning to completely delegate the problem and trusting them to actually solve it from being a hands-on person. I think this is one of the biggest challenges that uh, are transformations because our job then completely changes to getting chairs out of the way, helping people make decisions and allowing them to execute, allowing them to make mistakes. Because ultimately, all of us learn faster with mistakes. But which ones do you actually have the right choke points and checkpoints to say, this is important to me? But learning to know what to let go of that you would rather have the exec actually build to their style. But what do you actually allow for changes? Because the culture of a company doesn't have to be the same, right? The ones that actually don't evolve will die. Uh, so the company's culture is also very similar. It has to evolve with the relevance of the customers you serve, the market you serve, and of course, your own talent pool, the, the organization itself. For us, it's just people and product and customers. Those are the three ingredients to build a great company. And which means that leaving room for all of these three things is one of the biggest learnings to figure out like what to preserve, what to let go, and how to actually stay hands-off. How much do you hire ahead? Ah, good one. You always feel like you're behind. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I think it's a, a tricky balance. <laughs> I'm thinking with a company that's growing so quickly, that, that must be a huge challenge for you. Correct. I think more than hiring ahead, the way I think about this is how do you sequence the hires? There is always a feeling that you are upgrading one part of the organization first because you cannot go and hire up-level entire organization at the same time. Like you leave room for people to actually grow into certain roles and all of that continues to happen and some people will actually scale beautifully because the individual's ability to scale, right? Like it's a cliche now, right? The, the company scales faster than the individuals. Uh, and it's very true. But at the same time, leaving room versus like at what point do you actually hire is always a tricky problem. For me, the, the way I think about this is actually about sequencing the hires. For example, we deliberately hired our product leader before we hired a, another revenue leader. The reason being, we wanted to make sure that our seg we got our segmentation right. We went deeper into who actually gets the most value out of our product to narrow the focus and then deliberately go slow and make it smooth so we can go faster. To be able to do that, we said, we want a product leader who's obsessed about it, who can actually help put us on that path to execute and take the product up market with our customers. So we sequence, otherwise you bring in, let's say a great revenue leader first, that person will do the right job of actually trying to scale revenue, but it might come at the cost of the product because you are likely to be everywhere. If you do have not done the homework of knowing who are your best customers, who do I want to sell, who do I want to sell more to? So sequencing the hire, I think, is more important than the stage of the hire. And when we actually do this sequencing right, I feel like we will get the stage very quickly because naturally the organization pulls itself where the product leader then needs a revenue partner, then the revenue partner needs a marketing partner. And then you will know whether your organization is actually scaling or is it time for you to already hire the right person next. 
Excellent. Um, Chris, we've got one final question for you. We've asked all our unicorn leaders um, pretty much the same thing. If you could go back in time and give your younger self some guidance on how to excel in communications, what would it be and why? <laughs> Invest more time in deliberately watching more podcasts, listen to others talk, right? or watch others talk is one of those uh, things that I would actually give myself as a lesson simply because I think there is no better way to actually than watch and learn. There is so much uh, that you end up picking up by just watching others talk. Right? And, and especially peer group or people who are just further ahead of you, there is so much to learn. So I think that's one piece of advice I would give myself. Chris Subramanian, um, thank you so much for taking the time to join us online and record this today. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Thank you. Holly, what a lovely guy Chris was. Um, really enjoyed that. Any any thoughts on, on what he had to say? Yeah, what a great chat. I guess there's probably three things from, from that discussion. Firstly, I, I loved how in terms of building their company culture, they're not just focused on aspirational values, but they've then gone that one step further and defined what their rituals and habits as an organization would be. I, I, I like the fact that's something that you can really get your hands around as an employee. But secondly, the, the point he made about as a communicator, how it's more important to be authentic than, than try to be fake or someone you're not. That's clearly a, a real strength of his as, as we kind of took away from that that chat, kind of what a great guy and, and a really likable, personable discussion that we just had with him. And lastly, I think it's super brave, but a huge challenge um, as you're building a company. The point he made around not being afraid to hire people that are smarter or have better experience than you do. That's a real shift, I think, for a lot of these unicorn CEOs that we're talking to, that you, you have to go through that process where you realize that as the, as the founder and owner of a company, you don't know it all and you've got to hire the, the right people that can can answer questions you can't. Excellent summary. Thanks for that. No, I really, really enjoyed the uh, the chat with him. Um, that is actually it, though, for uh, for this latest episode with our special series with Taito. If you want to find out more about Chargebee, um, their website is very simply chargebee.com. We'd love to hear your comments on today's chat. You can do that by sharing them on our Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, or Twitter feeds. And you can also do it in the uh, comments of the YouTube version of this podcast. Uh, those are all linked from the top of our website at C-Suite podcast.com uh, where you'll also find all our previous shows and supporting show notes plus links to where you can follow us for automatic downloads of each episode via the likes of spotify and apple and if you've liked what you've heard please do give us a positive rating and review we're of course available on all podcast apps just search for the c-suite podcast hit follow or subscribe and don't forget you can also subscribe to the without borders podcast from our partners at taito all the details for that are on their website just head to taitopr.com click on the podcast link in the top nav bar and then while you're there uh, you can also also download a copy of Growing Without Borders, the Unicorn CEO Guide to Communication and Culture. That's an overview of the first 15 of our Unicorn interviews. If you are a Unicorn leader yourself and you'd like to be part of this series, please do get in touch via the contact form on the website at csuitepodcast.com. And of course, anyone can get in touch with any feedback you may have. And then finally, you can also reach me via Twitter using at Russ Goldsmith, or you can find me on LinkedIn. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>